Welcome to a Longwoods Leadership Discussion. I am Matthew Hart, or Matt Hart, CEO for Longwoods Publishing. Uh, many of you know or have at least heard of our host today. Through his career, Longwoods has been a strong supporter of Dr. Bell, and we continue to follow his career, his discussions, his thoughts, his opinions. And if you're not a follower of Dr. Bell, you should be. You can learn more about him on, your, on his website, docbobbell.com. Bob, the show is yours. Thanks so much, Matt, and welcome, everyone. The Partnership for Health System Sustainability and Resilience is a collaboration between AstraZeneca, KPMG, the London School of Economics, Phillips, the World Economic Forum, and the WHO Foundation. Motivated by a shared commitment to strengthen health systems and improve population health. We're grateful that AstraZeneca, KPMG, and Phillips fund this partnership. I'll introduce you to our panelists today. The Canadian Health System Sustainability and Resilience Report was led by Dr. Sarah Allen, Associate Professor of the Institute of Health Policy, Management and Evaluation at the University of Toronto. Sarah is a graduate of the London School of Economics and the Director of the North American Observatory of Health Systems and Policies, members of whom contributed to this report. Welcome, Sarah. Kirsten Combs, President, AstraZeneca Canada. Kirsten previously led the AZUS Cardiovascular and Metabolism Portfolio prior to becoming CEO of our Canadian organization. Darren Fisher, Managing Director, Phillips Canada. Welcome, Darren. Darren has a master's in respiratory physiology from Waterloo, as well as an MBA from Wilfrid Laurier. And Lee Chapman, Chief Nursing Officer of Canada, now in her role for at least three months. The CNO position was eliminated in 2011, but Health Canada has been widely congratulated and thanked for both reintroducing this position and selecting me, Lee, to serve as our Chief Nursing Officer. Lee's doctorate was completed at the Bloomberg Faculty of Nursing with a nurse, an emphasis on nursing education, health human resources, and I can't resist telling you that Lee was a fellow in UHN's Wilson Center. So the objectives of this discussion are to continue to raise awareness of the Canadian PHSSR report by introducing it to the Longwoods community, to encourage new engagement opportunities, and to identify champions in the network that can help co-create solutions and engage in implementations of the recommendations. And with that introduction, I'll turn it over to Dr. Sarah Allen to introduce the partnership, its origins, and recommendations. Sarah, over to you. Thanks, Bob, for the introduction. So I'm uh, pleased to have a chance just to kick off this panel. I won't be speaking for long, um, just to provide an overview of the project and a few of our, uh, the, the few of the sort of findings or recommendations that emerged among many, um, just to focus our discussion today. A bit of a background, so Bob already introduced this partnership and some of its founding members, and I was really excited and pleased when the group reached out to me to lead the Canadian study, um, and this is uh, an exciting uh, partnership to be involved in, and there's this joint sort of effort to develop and, and synthesize research and to promote the types of knowledge, knowledge exchange and, and collaborative activities such as this panel today. And the Canadian uh, report that I was really excited to, to take a lead role in is um, 
was just released and we have a link shared to all participants today. And it's one of uh, more than about 20 studies. Others are either published as part of the sort of first wave of the of the initiative or others that are um, on, uh, about to be published um, on the website. You should find them there. And what's interesting about this series is that it's both, you know, comparative in a sense that we're following a similar sort of analytical framework and allows us to collect and compile data and information and synthesize research using this framework that captures the full spectrum of health systems um, across uh, multiple domains, including governance, finance, delivery, uh, medicines, technology, workforce, but also looking at broad objectives such as population health and environmental sustainability. And so using this common analytic framework, it allows us to do a deep dive to uncover the strengths and weaknesses within our own systems, but then over time, uh, be able to compare and to look across all these other reports um, to sort of see how Canada's health systems compare, what are some of the uh, strengths of the other systems that we might compare ourselves to. And so that would be the sort of next step with this work once we've now produced our Canadian report um, and others start to be uh, published. It also is unique in that, you know, we've looked over time in the Canadian health system and compiled research that has been accumulating over decades to try and identify those strengths and weaknesses. But also we're emerging from a you know, huge shock to our societies and health systems. And so there's a attention paid to how this health systems fared during the COVID pandemic and what were some lessons learned from those experiences in order to inform the sort of strengthening of our resilience of the system going forward, but also looking at those long-term challenges to sustainability in terms of you know, being able to ensure that these health systems are high quality, that they're available to us when we need them now and as we age and, and going into the future. And so the work is really a synthesis of existing knowledge. And it also, in, in addition to compiling research and data that's available publicly, we also engaged an expert panel of uh, researchers, thought leaders, practitioners, current and former decision makers across Canada, as this expert panel was uh, invited to provide input and we had a dialogue to sort of inform what were the major priorities um, and to fine tune recommendations coming out of the report. So this was really a, a huge benefit to the, to the process in addition to having a great team of grad students and collaborators uh, on this project. So in, in short, I'll just say that there are 29 recommendations. So we do cover a wide uh, territory of, uh, of sort of issues and, and suggestions, some that can be addressed in the short, really immediate short term and others that might be a little longer term. And today I'll just draw your attention to a couple sort of key takeaways because really we're not gonna have time to cover all 29, but some of the cross cutting issues where we'd like to maybe focus our time today. And so we start with a sort of provocative statement that perhaps we're, un we're incapable of making changes. And this is perhaps a bit of a, a pessimistic view that by looking back over many decades and doing this wor work, we see the persistence of these problems and our awareness of the problems and yet our inability to make change. And so that hence this idea that maybe we aren't really able to make change. However, 
um, we think that maybe the crisis that we're emerging from will provide uh, an additional um, motivation and these discussions where we bring together many different partners and, and stakeholders in the system, maybe this is what we need to overcome our stasis and paralysis in the health system. So perhaps we can focus on uh, these three priorities as a starting point, one being primary care reform, uh, the other being focusing on strengthening and, and bolstering and addressing workforce crisis, and then the third and sort of cross-cutting issue is addressing long-term inadequacies in our health data infrastructure. And so to start with primary care, we know is the sort of first point of contact in the system. It's, it's a, known in the literature and in Canada that the strong primary care system as both at an individual level, but a population level will improve um, outcomes in terms of efficiency, appropriateness and health outcomes and improved equity. And we know there's major gaps in who has access to primary care and whether that care is actually continuous and coordinated. And so we highlight a couple of recommendations from the report here where we really see opportunities for um, drawing attention to what we know to be a major shortcoming in Canada to reform primary care, to ensure that this is uh, a main access hub that we support primary care providers to work in team-based interprofessional team models and certainly prioritizing underserved communities and ensuring that the workforce is optimized to, in order to meet those um, gaps. So this is fundamental. It's not gonna be a, a cure-all in terms of all the health system sustainability and resilience challenges, but it, it could make a huge uh, Im impact and can be addressed immediately. The second major area for attention arguably, and we don't need to really say this, uh, uh, enough, I think, is that the workforce is is the, the backbone, the central sort of with, you know, essential to support the workforce in the health system and much of the crisis that we're seeing now uh, in terms of overstretched acute care is in, due to the um, challenges in our workforce uh, to, today. And one of the challenges is that we don't really have any uh, accurate data or comprehensive data to really know where the gaps are and how to do effective planning, whether it's at a provincial or territorial level, but also across the country. And so the workforce data is an area of priority, as well as to uh, ensure that people are working at their full scope um, and that we can um, ensure that this uh, supports are in place to ensure that uh, workers can um, have the sort of satisfaction and job uh, with, with their jobs to improve retention retainment and uh, improve quality of care. And so to wrap up, this is a, a favorite of mine, is um, a long-standing issue as a researcher. It's a persistent challenge dealing with um, the Canadian context where there's a, um, some real pockets of excellent data, but we're lacking um, at a search, certainly Canada-wide data that can allow us to really ask the questions of which policy innovations are are effective, which new medications are actually providing the most health benefit and how, you know, what are the gains that we're getting with any sort of new funding models or experimentation and delivery without an effective data system. And we know that there's great work out there to inform a pan-Canadian data strategy. And so we're really hopeful that that will set us on a path to the types of, you know, modern data systems that would allow us to 
sort of make um, informed decisions in Canada and to do rigorous research to support these decisions. And then, you know, another perennial issue is our sort of provider-centric data systems, uh, which, you know, don't really support the type of, con con uh, you know, coordinated and continuous care with data following patients through the system. Um, this is in part due to interoperability um, and just different providers working on their own individual data systems. And so we can continue to try and push through the barriers that have prevented us from moving towards more interoperable and communicating uh, data systems that will improve the patient experience, but hopefully also provider experience as well. So this was a very quick overview, Bob, but I'm hoping that it'll be enough to sort of start the conversation, but also, you know, maybe pique your curiosity to read the full report. So I'm excited to, to have the conversation today and I'll stop, stop there. Thanks so much, Sarah. And we'll, uh, we'll come back to you to try to flesh out some of those recommendations in the areas that you discussed. But uh, let me turn now to Kirsten Combs. Uh, and Kirsten, as one of the co-founding partners of PHSSR, why is AstraZeneca involved? And what areas of uh, this Canadian report do you find particularly important? Yeah, you know, it's probably the question as we've been talking about this report that we get asked the most, and I know Darren too, as to why would a pharmaceutical manufacturer be involved in, in a program like this? And I guess for me, it's it's somewhat intuitive that we absolutely have a role to play in the sustainability and resiliency of our healthcare system. And you don't have to look too far, but you know, COVID very much taught us what the tremendous cost of disease can, can put on society, not just from a financial perspective in the government, but also from a human resource perspective and an economic development perspective. And you know, at AstraZeneca, when the pandemic hit, we very much believed we needed to be part of the solution in fighting this global crisis. And we are very proud of the role that we played here in Canada and really around the globe to bring a vaccine to you know almost 3 billion doses were delivered of AstraZeneca vaccine. And not only was it the vaccine, but we also have a monoclonal antibody for immunocompromised patients to protect them against COVID. So we are very much continue in this fight to be part of the solution. But getting people protected against COVID was only one part of it. What we now see post-COVID or in a post-COVID world is that the sustainability and resiliency of our healthcare system is really struggling. And so we're very proud to be part of this project and a partner uh, with Professor Allen in, in bringing this to Canada. I think what we also learned during the pandemic was that when government and industry work together to solve a crisis that we can be agile and create patient-centered solutions that can move at speed. And I think the idea is, is what we learned during and during COVID to bring these vaccines and other medicines to market, how do we leverage those learnings and actually make them part of the sustainability of our healthcare system going forward? And I'm encouraged that the conversation is happening. I'm encouraged to start to see some provincial strategies and plans to actually modernize healthcare but I think there's more for us to do. And the conversation that we wanna have with PHSSR is how do we actually work together, private and public partnership, collaboration across the ministries within the government to truly make change that will impact patients. So when I listen to Sarah talk about kind of the, the, the three top findings, for me, the one that resonates the most is really being able to scale primary care. 
I think that if everybody in Canada had access to primary care services at the, the early signs of disease, we could really truly take a, not, a big, huge burden off of the healthcare system. And so it's not just as Sarah talked about with these interdisciplinary teams, but I also think we know that primary care services doesn't necessarily have to be provided by a physician. We have nurse practitioners, therapists, pharmacists in some provinces that can provide some of these very important early interventions. I think that is really important for us to talk about how do we make that happen. The other piece of it is the focus on screening, focus and investment on screening for disease and prevention. Because we know the earlier we can intervene in disease progression, the better chance we have at either slowing the disease or uh, potentially preventing it altogether. And I think there's a real opportunity that if we can intervene earlier, not only do patients live healthier lives, but we also know that it reduces the cost to serve those patients. Thanks, Kirsten. You know, uh, yeah, when you're talking about primary care and the importance that you've placed on that and the recommendations that Dr. Allen's uh, team has brought forward, it, it's fascinating because, of course, in this country, you simply do not have access to any publicly funded health care if you do not have a primary care provider. You know, uh, it's not only designed to enhance relationship-based care, which the literature says is so important, to a, to a healthy life, but also it's simply a gatekeeper primary care to getting any access to service. So Dr. Allen, back to you. You've talked about the importance of primary care in your report. Uh, this afternoon, what, what, what are you thinking about in terms of changes that should happen in primary care to ensure that all Canadians have access to relationship-based primary care? What are, what are your suggestions, Sarah? Yeah, and I think what we do in the report is try and draw attention to some of the examples where there's sort of innovations, some more progress towards the types of team-based uh, care that can be um, more effective in both supporting the providers themselves because they have people they can refer really easily to without having to jump through hoops to get, you know, mental health supports for their patients. They're actually in the same team, whether that's in, under the same roof or just a virtual team, but still this, this sort of experience of, you know, identifying what uh, each provider um, is trained and best placed to do and then referring where possible seems to be really en enabled through teams. And so, you know, we have many examples of those in, in the country and in, in province of Ontario, we know family health teams have started to make some headway and although they vary tremendously team by team and then community health centers are another like incredible example of, you know, an innovation from, you know, what, 50 years old, but still, um, you know, one that we learn from. And so we don't want to forget that we have these examples where trying to reach um, more vulnerable or, or complex populations, this is a really effective model. And we've never really scaled it up beyond the very uh, minimal kind of uh, role that they've played. And then nurse practitioner-led clinics is another approach that it's kind of a unique Ontario model that hasn't really um, been spread across the country uh, yet, and perhaps that's another area of, um, you know, learning. And so we tried to draw attention to some of these examples where we have, 
uh, you know, made some progress with a lot of investments in the last 20 years that have gone to primary care, like huge amount of spending to increase the supply of providers and to scale up some of these initiatives, but they're still pretty marginal. So it would be great to sort of see how we could build on those early successes and continue to try and prioritize primary care, make it really attractive for, for physicians and nurses to go into. Um, and so those are just a few examples of the path that we might be able to take. Yeah, thanks. It's interesting in that if we tie together the emphasis you've placed on primary care and the emphasis on the pan-Canadian data strategy, we have multiple different applied experiments happening across the country. You've mentioned a few in Ontario, and now we have a new model for primary care physician compensation in BC that's quite dramatically different from the Ontario rostered compensation model. Sarah, how are we going to actually look at these different examples of uh, Canadian primary care evolution and understand what works? Mm -hmm. Well, we need some data on, you know, to be able to to measure these. And there's lots of um, progress towards allowing, you know, researchers to access data in multiple provinces, you know, through the Health Data Research um, Network or Health. Um, I think I've health said Data Research Network Canada, yeah, which I chair exactly. the board. You're absolutely right, an important organization. Thank you for mentioning. <laughs> exactly. So that you know is, is helpful. But having conversations like these that are national or pan-Canadian in their focus, so. And people can identify where other researchers and practitioners are working to learn from. So one of the uh, objectives of the North American Observatory on Health Systems and Policies, where I'm leading, is to really have these, um, you know, to enable the types of collaborations that are needed to measure, monitor, and, and sort of report on the, the performance of these various initiatives and to draw lessons across the country. Thanks, Sarah. Darren, uh, first of all, thanks for Philip's uh, support of this important initiative in Canada. And as a partner in PHSSR, is there a specific policy recommendation that resonates uh, with you at Philip's Canada? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks, Bob, and thanks for the opportunity to be on the panel today. Uh, it's a sense of pride for Philip's and Philip's Canada in particular to be part of this partnership. Um, your question around, you know, what specific recommendation? You know, I would, I would point to strengthening governance around our health data. So Dr. Allen just talked um, a little bit about health data. And then, you know, go a little bit deeper and specifically with the intent of health data governance to drive interoperability, transparency, and then, you know, that linkage back to uh, electronic health records. Um, this resonates for us, for Philips Canada and Philips, you know, globally as a, as a health technology leader, given our focus on providing clinicians with the right data you know, uh, data points in time uh, to make the first time right diagnosis. So huge focus for us. Um, if you go a little bit, if you go, if I may go a little bit deeper, um, you know, despite broad recognition and, uh, you know, consensus of the importance of integrated, uh, you know, patient records, and despite considerable investments across the country, provincially and uh, territorially, uh, you know, major challenges remain. And so bolstering the integration of, disparate platforms, uh, you know, streamline the workflow for clinicians, physicians, um, and provide a clearer sort of more thorough unified data set. Um, you know, if we're able to do that, uh, and we look at some of the recommendations within this report, we could significantly improve uh, the patient experience as well as um, staff experience. And so, 
if you think of creating an intelligent healthcare system uh, that's more proactive than uh, you know reactive, you know that's the opportunity. And then maybe just you know final remark, uh, Bob. You know the big question is always how, right? Everybody always talks about how. And so, Dr. Allen spoke uh, briefly about the Pan Canadian Health Data Strategy. Um, and so, if we go back to the fall of uh, 2020 and the expert advisory group uh, uh, for the Pan Canadian Health Data Strategy. If you look at the three reports that that uh, you know that group that expert expert panel have produced, um, there's concrete recommendations, right? That'll uh, that talk about root cause systemic failures as well as concrete steps to move move things forward um, and really help us understand how we can collect data, health data, manage it, and ultimately share it so we can get ourselves to a point of more intelligent uh, healthcare system and also a proactive healthcare system. Thanks, Darren. You know, um, there are so many examples of how technology with minimal investment can improve care for Canadians. We look at the concept of e-prescribing, for example, the improvement in safety, the improvement in understanding complex issues such as uh, opioid use across the country. If we look at one of the key factors that the Commonwealth Fund finds as a negative feature of the Canadian system, that is access to referrals, access to specialists, access to surgery, and the opportunity that e-referral and e-consultation have for rapidly and cost-effectively improving access to specialist care. These are things that are getting either done extraordinarily slowly or things that just are kind of stuck. If we look at e-referral, fewer than 30% of the referrals across the country, according to Canada Health Infoway, are done with e-referral or e-consultation. Sarah, when you considered the consolidation of technology of data strategy with care, I'm gonna dip into one of the questions that's in the chat that's been asked to us already. What's the influence, since you talked about governance in your report, what's the influence of political will to make these sort of initiatives happen at a faster rate? How do we get the importance of governance to simply say, this has to happen tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, that's that, that sounds like a, a tempting um, piece of advice that you could give to um, people who who's have you know, positions of decision-making um, authority, um, you know, if not now, then when would they, you know, have that, a, a bold strategy like that? And so I think it's the government's role to provide those overall, you know, priorities and setting a clear strategy and then empowering and enabling and sort of investing in the change that would need to happen and be led by the local or regional or, you know, individual provider organizations to implement and devise and collaborate. So, I think the, you know, the, it's, it seems like the, you know, one of the gaps perhaps is a lack of a clear vision to implement this type of data or digital strategy that might be, um, you know, reflection of political will or at least political priorities at the time. And so where we see maybe a change in that, um, you know, in the, clarity and sort of a, a statement of, of priority and then all the other things that may, will be needed. So, you know, you can't just expect change to happen with a statement and a strategic sort of role, but also 
change is expensive, it's hard. Um, people don't want to adopt new information systems when they've been using some for a long time. So I think, um, yeah, that's one piece of the puzzle for sure, but there's gonna be many more uh, steps that, you know, collaboration with the types of stakeholders in this conversation will be really helpful. And maybe I'll ask all the panelists to think forward to answer this question a little later, and that is what is the role of the federal government recognizing that provincial territorial jurisdictions are responsible for healthcare delivery? Does the federal government have a role in terms of the political will to make change happen for Canadians? So let me ask you to put on your thinking hats and think about that for a bit later. Before we get there, we all know that health care workforce is a crucial area right now. We hear the term crisis applied in the media on a daily basis. And I'm so happy that we have Canada's chief nursing officer join us for this discussion. Uh, you know, Lee, from the PHSSR report, what resonated most for you in terms of the recommendations around health workforce? And where do you see the future of the health workforce in Canada? What do we need to understand better and plan for in terms of health workforce need. Welcome, Lee, and love to hear from you. Thanks so much. It's certainly my pleasure to be here with this uh, esteemed panel and uh, and be part of the discussion uh, today. I, I think, um, you know, one of the things that that really jumped out at me from the report uh, was about the, the need for the sort of unanimous call for radical transformation. And I think that, you know, it goes without saying that we are in a state of crisis and the federal government. Um, so Minister Duclos has been very frank about the crisis that we're in, which I think is very validating for providers who are under tremendous pressure um, to deliver care under grueling circumstances um, that, you know, over the past two and a half years, um, and, and certainly continuing to present day, and also for, for patients who are uh, facing uh, constraints in sort of accessing care in a way that we haven't seen before in certainly in this generation in terms of emergency department closures and uh, the, the certainly the demand for services. So I think this report to me provides a realistic portrayal of the vulnerability. I know that the title is around sustainability and resilience, but we are in a, a current state of vulnerability. So the report does provide the opportunity to sort of get, cast our gaze forward with, with optimism and hope that we all have a role to play in transforming the system. And, and certainly change at this point is inevitable. And when I, when I think of the sort of a priori agenda for action that I was given uh, when I came into the role in August, uh, the priorities are certainly aligned. So, uh, you know, a key priority is around efficient integration of internationally educated nurses, Another is around multi-jurisdictional registration. And I would just say that, you know, around uh, optimizing scope, we can only enhance portability of licensure in as much as we have a, a common pan-Canadian understanding of the scope of practice for providers across the country. Uh, and then, of course, improving our workforce planning data, where we're, we're very um, sort of hamstrung in terms of our ability to um, you know, anticipate surges or plan effectively without effective uh, workforce planning data. So the, my, you know, my priorities as chief nursing officer are very closely aligned uh, in terms of, you know, what is coming out of the report. But I think the report gives us a, a bit of a map uh, in looking forward. 
so that we can build a robust uh, uh, health workforce. You know, the, one of the uh, appendices of this report um, refers to the one of the things that Canada perhaps learned most from the pandemic experience, especially in the first stages of the pandemic before vaccines became available, and that was the vulnerability of our nursing home system, our long-term care system. Mm -hmm. And of course, the vulnerability of the people who work there, you know, mm -hmm. thinking about Carol Estbrook's work in, in Calgary, showing that the outcome of residents in long-term care depends so highly on the experiences of the workforce. And I think we all recognize that. But certainly, you know, uh, Canada has relied on new Canadians to provide care in our nursing home sector, in our home care sector, providing care to our most vulnerable patients, uh, the people with, uh, with frailty, with declining cognitive ability. Does your portfolio include the opportunity to engage personal support care? workers, healthcare aides in a career trajectory approach to their contribution to our healthcare system? Yeah, so uh, definitely in, in two ways. One I would say is, uh, you know, my branch within uh, Health Canada is certainly looking at developing, uh, is working on developing standards uh, for long-term care. Uh, but the other piece is around uh, career laddering. As you mentioned, that this is this is something that, you know, when we look at efficient integration of internationally educated nurses, there is an opportunity uh, to immediately um, have have some of those folks um, be working in healthcare in some capacity while they're awaiting the the licensing uh, process or while they're awaiting um, you know parts of that that uh, credential recognition or educational verification process um, and and this is not something just that in our international colleagues are looking for it's something that uh, our domestic uh, applicants are also looking for, you know, when they think of a career in healthcare, um, it is, you know, lower commitment to perhaps to to start at a at a PSW level and then and look at longer options in terms of bridging. And uh, and I think we need all hands on deck. We need all of those roles. They all play a vital. Uh, they all make a vital contribution to our our care delivery. And uh, so we need to absolutely look at you know ways where we can scaffold learning. Um, and and build programs where you know people can see themselves in a long career in healthcare with various options uh, in terms of their terminal outcomes. Uh, so yeah, we absolutely need to look at that. And you know the other thing, Lee, in terms of that continuum, um, you know it's been mentioned already in this call the opportunity for full scope of practice for nursing in primary care. The international evidence demonstrating that outcomes with nurse practitioners as relationship-based primary care providers provide excellent outcomes. How do we get more nurse practitioners trained and how do we get more nurse practitioners employed across this country? Yeah, so there have been, I'm, you know, I'm so pleased to see primary care feature so prominently in the report um, because nurses and nurse practitioners and even midwives and, you know, other care providers play a vital role in primary care and, uh, and, 
you know, often when we talk about primary care reform, the conversation shifts to, um, you know, the, the family physician sort of model, which is, I think, an incomplete picture of, of primary care in, in sort of the full uh, fullest capacity. There has been increased growth in the nurse practitioner uh, field specifically, uh, but I would say that there is an underutilization um, or under under utilization um, across the country sort of in terms of the effective um, integration of nurse practitioners uh, into healthcare, broadly speaking. Um, so I think there are some real opportunities there, not just for nurses practicing autonomously. There's nurses, you know, in the territories who are delivering care uh, independently in uh, entire communities. Uh, so nurses and nurse practitioners have a vital role to play in, in that, that sector. And when we talk about team-based care, uh, we need to broaden our are thinking about who can lead the team effectively, and uh, and it's not always physicians. Yeah. To all panelists, you know, uh, there are two appendices to this report that I'd encourage uh, I'd encourage folks to read. Matthew Hart has sent out the reference to the report, and I believe you've all received the report. And I'll remind you that the French translation of the full report will be coming out tomorrow. The second appendix, one is around uh, outcomes in nursing care. The other is a better news story, perhaps, related to the private-public partnership that allowed Canada to be one of the world le leaders of, uh, of achieving access to vaccines and encouraging folks to get vaccinated. And Sarah, I think you write about this as a success story that Canadians should be proud of and should learn from. Uh, what were the key elements of that partnership that evolved that allowed us to gain access to vaccines really as quickly as most countries around the world and also use them. Yeah, it was nice to find one example, at least of a somewhat more positive um, sort of case, uh, because the, the overarching tone of the report is, is as Lee pointed out, one of more uh, vulnerability than, than resilience. And so this was one that we just jumped upon and we're uh, excited to talk about the, the success in sort of, you know, in a comparative perspective, Canada faring very well. Um, so we didn't have a lot of time to really understand and examine what were the key or the main factors, but there seems to be a whole confluence of, of effective kind of steps along the way that set us on that path. Um, one of them being leadership at the federal government level and you know, rapid action and massive investments that you know, the federal government is the only government really able to achieve such a, an outcome to be able to purchase and, um, you know, take a fairly rapid approach to um, authorization and approval of these new um, vaccines. And so, you know, that sets us, provides an example for how uh, we may fare in future with federal government sort of taking on that financial burden, but also leading in an area where it's with, squarely within the jurisdiction of the federal government to to play a role. So successes there, as well as intense collaboration that was probably unprecedented in terms of the level of uh, frequency of engagement and, and uh, you know, throughout the whole pandemic, governments meeting and, and planning collaboratively, um, also during the vaccine rollout. So um, also a shared sense of um, 
you know, equity being a major um, priority seems to have been another strength where there, perhaps for the first time, it was um, explicit that the priority populations would be the North and Indigenous communities um, to receive and to have um, increased sort of um, allocation of uh, vaccines. And this also sets us up on, you know, with a nice precedent for future investments and sort of, um, you know, a very small step toward what those recommendations coming out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission are in terms of, you know, recognizing the past wrongs and injustices and ongoing racism and inequities in the system. So those are just a few of the examples where, you know, those sort of initial successes, both federally, but intergovernmentally and prioritizing equity um, seem to have set us on a good path. And we'll see how, you know, how the challenges of maintaining uh, support among the public for public health measures and vaccines specifically, given the um, immense challenge that everyone's facing to sort of you know, maintain public trust, maintain public confidence, I think will be a major challenge. And I hope the next report is not one with more of the vulnerabilities in that space as well, but we should try and try and pre prevent that. Yeah, I think your, your mention of uh, the way vaccines were distributed, it was an extraordinary revelation that probably for the first time in our history, a desired commodity uh, was allocated first to indigenous communities. That was, uh, something that I think uh, was a bit of a step forward in this country. Um, Kirsten, from the perspective of the private sector, uh, what went right in the distribution, approval of vaccines, approval of drugs, the integration of the private sector into the work necessary to get new therapies to Canadians who needed them? Yeah, because as I was, I think this goes back, Bob, to your other question is, is there a role for the federal government? And as Sarah said, I very much believe there is. And as you listen to Lee talk about what could be possible in a primary care setting, another great example on, I think, where the federal government could really help us implement change that could be meaningful across, you know, across the nation. But I think, you know, as I sit and listen to and having lived through kind of the vaccine experience from a from a private industry perspective, to me, the thing that that was probably critical to the success of it all is the amount of integration that we saw happen at the federal and provincial level across many, many government agencies to actually be able to assess a medicine and you know, assess the effectiveness of the medicine, price the medicine, and then distribute the medicine to patients in what was basically record-breaking time. And so, you know, Canada is known for not necessarily having the fastest regulatory process to bring new scientific innovations to market. Actually, we're probably on the lower end of the OECD country list. But what we saw with COVID was that, yes, even though the process is complex and long, it can be shortened and it can be agile. And with the collaboration that really wasn't necessarily, yes, there was industry partnership with it, but the, the credit goes to the, the federal and provincial government agencies that bring these medicines to market and assess them for the many different ways that we do. And so I think you saw what could happen. I think to Sarah's point, 
Um, and even just, you know, last night on the news, there's there's news now about, well, geez, did the federal government buy too many vaccines and did were we able to donate them and so forth, right? And so we can't undo, I think, the lessons and the success that we saw and what is possible, what can happen with collaboration. And I think then, then the question is, how do you scale it and how do you actually use it to bring more scientific innovation that really truly can stop disease in faster ways than ever we've seen before? And and how do we get those into Canadian hands um, in, in a time that really can make a difference in their lives? Thanks, Kirsten. Darren, anything that Phillips learned from the public-private part, public partnerships that developed through the pandemic that we need to take note of uh, looking at the transformation we all recognize needs to happen in Canadian healthcare delivery? Yeah, I think I think the takeaway is there's um, an opportunity to work together, right? And I think Kirsten mentioned it. You know, when we when we want to move with speed together, uh, we can, and we we identified that during the pandemic. Uh, Bob, our experience was more provincially, right? Around expanding ICU capacity, you know, changing step downs to you know uh, higher acuity, you know, uh, and bringing monitors, ventilators, etc., uh, into hospitals to expand, and so. Um, Certainly, early days of the pandemic, quite a scramble, right, to understand what we can and cannot do, and even from a supply chain perspective, from you know Global Phillips. Uh, but in terms of that coordination, sort of middle of the pandemic, being able to expand those uh, ICUs, et cetera, if we work together, uh, public-private, um, there's strengths on both sides, uh, and there's overlap, and there's things we can do together uh, to be highly effective, and and that was brought out in a really good way uh, during the pandemic. Thanks, Darren. Um, Lee, not to put you on the spot, but you are the person here from the uh, federal government. So there you go. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're used to complaining about the federal government, but I think it's absolutely clear that Health Canada, as, uh, as Kirsten mentioned, moved forward, changed its regulatory processes and responded to the needs that Canadian had during the pandemic. And then we get to Victoria, you know, a few weeks ago, and suddenly the process seems to seems to crash somehow, the PT federal collaboration stops. Um, any sense for how you see the role of the federal government? You've talked about the standards, for example, in long-term care mm -hmm. that uh, Samir Sinha is developing with Accreditation Canada, HSO. Give us a sense of that. What's the role that the federal government can play in improving the quality of care for Canadians? Well, I think I think the federal role, federal government has a significant role to play, and we saw that in the vaccine rollout. Um, we certainly saw that in the um, in the health minister's meeting that you referenced in, in Vancouver, and and you know just prior to that. Um, so the role is really one of conve a convening role and a collaborating role, and there's real uh, goodwill in in continuing that work, uh, the work that was undertaken in uh, during the pandemic, and moving forward to address some of these these tricky issues in terms of health workforce. Prior to the health minister's meeting. Um, the we, the federal government launched a coalition for action, which is very uh, it's interprofessional, it's pan Canadian in nature, and it's very uh, focused on implementable solutions uh, to the the current crisis that we're seeing in, in terms of the health workforce. So there is a real commitment uh, and concerted action in the area of of addressing the the um, the challenges that we're facing in terms of access in our in our Canadian healthcare system. 
Um, and and I think there is, you know, a lot of goodwill and a lot of collaboration uh, that that needs to really propel us forward while respecting jurisdictional autonomy in terms of the provinces and territories responsibility for healthcare delivery. Thank you, Lee. Uh, let's get to some of the great questions that we're seeing. Uh, you know, we've got over 400 audience members and let's see what their interests are. There's a uh, question from Hannah Varto. I'm going to start on since we spent time on primary care during the discussion. And Hannah suggests that we need to look at assignment of Canadians to primary care providers as essentially a right and something that should be organized somewhat like our school system is. That is, if you live in this area, here are the group of primary care providers available to take your care, kind of a school board approach. What do you think of that, Sarah? Is that something that has potential in terms of developing relationship-based care for all Canadians? I mean, yeah, that that has potential. I think it's a it's an idea that has been attempted in the past, at least with the Patients First Act in in Ontario, or at least the advise the expert uh, advisory group that had preceded that, um, really looking to the UK to say like, okay, in the UK, they have this sort of assignment approach where you're assigned your, or you're allowed to choose someone in your, in your uh, local area. And then everyone has to be registered. It's, it's a requirement to gain access to the system and to have your coverage. So it's, it's an appealing approach. However, in our system, it, it's unlikely to be <laughs> implemented. And, you know, we've sort of tried or at least we've, you know, it, it's come very close in the province of Ontario to um, being considered at least. But instead, perhaps an approach is to try and, you know, encourage or incentivize the shift to that in that direction. So one approach in, you know, salaried providers having better quality of life was noted by Hannah as well in this the you know those models that I mentioned you know nurse-led clinics and community health centers could be scaled up to allow people who do prefer that workplace you know and, and model of work could have opportunities to work there so that might be um, an, a nice approach while also allowing providers who are you know keen with the the current model to, to continue as well um, I think we can do a lot better in in matching and sort of the connecting people with providers. Um, so I know the data systems that allow people to see who actually has an open list who's taking patients is is inadequate. We've all governments have tried to struggle to have, have implemented approaches to deal with this. Um, so I think we can do a lot better and perhaps as a requirement to sort of update that maybe providers could be, you know, supported with some um, administrative supports to be able to maintain and update a um, website or a data set that people can actually search. And, um, you know, we can build on Healthcare Connect in Ontario, for example, but actually make it useful and, and uh, accurate. So those are just some ideas, but I think scaling up some of the models that we have to allow for some alternative approaches without perhaps mandating a total, you know, GP let GP practice model like in the UK might be more feasible in the Canadian context. But I'm I'm excited to hear from others and, and maybe Lee if you have an idea of what whether the you know registration approach might work or um, an alternative solution in Canada. It's always interesting when we read about uh, so-called unattached Canadians, Canadians who don't have a primary care provider, 
that we usually have to rely on polling companies or stats can polls to actually understand it. Provinces really don't have much in the way of information about that. Um, a lot of interest in the questions, uh, maybe I could start off with Lee, around virtual care, the explosion of virtual care during the pandemic, how it fundamentally became for a while, for a few months, the only way that you could get primary care, for example, in Canada. Lee, what's, what's the future of virtual care, both in terms of primary care, in terms of chronic disease management, where do you see virtual care situating in the future of the Canadian health system? Yeah, I think I think virtual COVID has sort of shown us that virtual care has a key role to play. You know, we've we've done things. We we it it sort of provided a, an example of the nimbleness uh, in which we can provide care to um, to to folks in a, in a you know very robust way. I think there's lots of regulatory levers that need to be. Uh, amended to facilitate virtual care. Uh, for example, when, you know, providers um, in, for example, British Columbia provide care, uh, you know, tertiary care in, in, uh, in Vancouver, for example, and then uh, that patient goes back to the territories, that provider also needs to be registered uh, to provide care, even if it's virtual in the territories. And so this is where something like multi-jurisdictional registration, having that portability of licensure is really important to ensure that seamless uh, care occurs across provincial and territorial boundaries. And I think, you know, when Canadians think about our healthcare system, they don't think about some of these geographic borders uh, or the, the differences, the silos or differences between different sectors of the health care system. They just know that they, you know, we, we sort of pride ourselves on our Canadian healthcare system and, uh, and really want access. So virtual care is certainly a, a means of, um, you know, providing access, but there's some, some changes that we need to make to facilitate, facilitate that on an ongoing basis. Yeah, it just seems obvious in a country where accreditation and certification is provided by pan-Canadian colleges, College of, Canadian College of Family Practice, the Royal College of Physicians, and so it just seems like pan-Canadian registration that colleges do automatically across provinces and territories would seem to be a slam dunk, huh? Glad to hear that you're thinking about that. Yeah, and I think medicine is, you know, a little different than nursing and perhaps um, you know, I think the CMA has gone so far as to say we need national licensure, uh, mm. and we need to move in that direction. Nursing is is a bit different. We have 22 regulatory bodies for nursing in uh, 13 jurisdictions, 14 if you include the federal uh, department. So there's there's some work to do on harmonizing uh, practices from a pan-Canadian perspective. Yep. Um, Sarah, a couple of comments in the report around, is this about health or healthcare? And if it's about health, the social determinants of health, secure income, secure food, uh, secure housing, our social medicine aspects are probably as important as the, or more important than the organization of the Canadian health system per se. Comments on that in terms of uh, considerations during the development of the report. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, actually the, the report's not really about health because the section on population health is at the end, it was kind of added to the template with, you know, which is a great improvement, but the, the focus of the report, report is really around, you know, optimizing the way the health system functions. And then 
hopefully with the, you know, with improvements to health system performance, we may achieve some health improvement or population health improvements, but we may not. Um, to do so, we do need to go to, you know, address the more structural and social determinants. So, you know, that section is is inadequate. It's very short. You know, we've, we, we, we wish we could have spent more time, but that was not the aim. So I think, um, you know, it's a fair point. I think, you know, part of the recommendations we make are around, you know, identifying, well, first we've, we've been, we, we're sort of known internationally as a leader in population health. It's a reputation that we inherited in the seventies and, and still on calls when I'm talking to people in other countries, this is brought up like, oh, Canada, it's a leader in the space. And we have to acknowledge that we are a laggard. We have failed to deliver on that uh, reputation. We have not achieved improved population health that we have maintained and exacerbated inequities. And so we've provided a few examples where we can tackle things like poverty among families with children. And you know, through cash transfers, these are just sort of some of the tools we can do to address these structural determinants, but it's, um, you know, we draw attention to them. We talk about our, our failures in terms of our action. We have some good reports and statements, but not much on action. Thanks, Sarah. And uh, in the minute we have remaining, I'm going to leave the toughest question of the session to Lee. And that's the question from Laurie McKinnon. And that is, <laughs> what advice do you have for workers who are discouraged from the lack of progress? She says, I remember talking about these very same issues many years ago before my master's program in 2012. Lee, give us 30 seconds of advice for people working in this system today. Well, I would say I'm encouraged by their attendance here. Um, I think that shows their engagement. And I think often when we're in times of crisis and times of, you know, when things are looking very bleak in terms of our healthcare system, we tend to retreat. And it's actually the opposite uh, that we need to do now. We need to be engaged. Uh, we need to be advocating at all levels. So whether that's within the organization, um, at a provincial level, uh, with you know, with your union, there's all kinds of opportunities. And really, I think the report does provide uh, an opportunity to look forward. And of course, I I would be remiss if I didn't say that I believe nurses have a key role to play in supporting and upholding our publicly funded Canadian healthcare system. And, uh, and, and I think we need to really look forward to system reform uh, with optimism um, of how we can really meet the needs of those who are most, most vulnerable um, and, and build a robust Canadian healthcare system to address the needs of all Canadians. And I must say, having a chief nursing officer in Canada again is one of those things that makes me optimistic. Listen, thanks to uh, our four panelists on behalf of the audience. Uh, Thanks to AstraZeneca Canada. Thanks to Philips Canada for your sponsorship and your participation. Dr. Allen, thank you for a succinct and uh, very meaningful report with strong recommendations that we can all take to heart. Matthew, thank you for bringing us together today.